I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 32 of Caro Pop. As the outside farmer's markets kick into gear and a bounty of spring produce becomes available, now's the perfect time to visit with this week's guest, Sarah Stegner. She's the award-winning chef of Prairie Grass Cafe in Chicago's North Suburbs, as well as a champion of sustainable food and women working in restaurants. She co-founded Chicago's Green City Market, a trailblazing farmer's market devoted to sustainable food and the abundance setting, which advocates for working mothers in the hospitality industry. Full disclosure, I've known and liked Sarah since we were classmates at Evanston Township High School a long time ago, and I was excited to watch her rise as a chef and delighted to taste her food along the way. She reached the top of the industry as she and executive chef George Bambaras made the dining room at the Ritz-Carlton one of Chicago's top fine dining destinations. Sarah was named the James Beard Foundation's Rising Star Chef in 1994 and won the Beard Award for Best Chef Midwest in 1998. In 2000, Wine Spectator named the dining room at the Ritz-Carlton one of the top 20 restaurants in America, and that same year, Condé Nast Traveler deemed it the second best hotel dining room in the world. But Chef Sarah decided she didn't want to keep ascending the fine dining mountain. She preferred to return to Earth to share with more people her vision of delicious meals prepared with expert technique and farm-sourced sustainable ingredients. In 2004, she and Chef Bambaras opened Prairie Grass Cafe in Northbrook with Sarah's husband, Rohit Nambiar, running the front of the house and the wine program. Prairie Grass does something that many restaurants struggle to do. It appeals to a broad clientele without hindering the chef's ability to pursue their vision and to work with the freshest ingredients available. Aside from being on its board, Chef Stegner is one of Green City Market's best customers and her guests enjoy the benefits. She and I spoke in Prairie Grass's dining room a few hours before that evening service. And as you'll hear, she's incredibly thoughtful and insightful about what it takes to run a restaurant right now while adhering to a firm set of values. She shares her feelings about chefs who yell in the kitchen. She addresses the unique challenges faced by women in the restaurant industry and what she's doing to try to increase the percentage of female chefs. She reveals an injury she had just suffered in the kitchen and why she regretted her impulse to tough it out. She reflects on how her grandmother's and mother's cooking and baking influenced her and how she still serves her mother's delicious pies in the restaurant. She also talks about what it's like to work with her husband at the restaurant while trying to raise a daughter at home. She discusses which innovations from the pandemic will be useful moving forward. And she makes us think about the love that goes into and we take out of a great meal. You will savor this Carol Pop conversation with Sarah Stegner. So I'm sitting here with Sarah Stegner at Prairie Grass Cafe, one of my favorite restaurants uh, in the city and the world. And Chef and uh, Chef Sarah, or just Sarah as I know her, is one of my favorite people and has been since we went to Evanston Township High School together. So thank you for hosting us here. Oh, I'm thrilled that you're here. This is going to be good. When you were in high school and I knew you as a as a young woman, girl, did you were you cooking then or did you pick up on this later? Yeah, I was cooking. Um, I cooked with my mom and I cooked passionately about what all different ethnicities and I baked and I was really I was really engaged in the whole process from early on. I did not have the idea in my head that I would be a chef and didn't really know what that meant in terms of the industries. A lot of people in this business, they come from 
family that has some connection with the restaurant industry, and mine did not. Although you had a grandmother who was a caterer, though, yes, right? Yes, my grandmother was a caterer, and on the other side of the family, they were butchers. But uh, my dad was a professor at Northwestern, so a little different there. Um, yeah, and I, I just thought, okay, well, I could do classical guitar at Northwestern and pursue that, or I could be a chef. That might be fun. So that was later on that I... Or you could cook for people and then come out with your guitar and then provide the... <laughs> like, that's not going to work. That would be cool. I should, we should, you should do like a special dinner where you, like, you're, you're the chef and the entertainment. Okay. This, this, is, this is an audio <laughs> experience for you all, so you can't see the look on her face that would be really good Jeff. I'm just saying... <laughs> So, so your grandmother was a was a caterer. I mean, were there a lot of women doing that in her generation? No, I think of her as you know groundbreaking entrepreneur, powerful, just very dedicated. You know, everything was done from scratch. They had a garden. Their backyard was the entire backyard was a garden. But um, she she did, yeah, she catered. Is there a first memorable meal that you remember? From my grandmother? No, just in general. Like like when you sort of think back on your childhood, like the first time you remember eating something and being like, wow. You know, my mom cooked from scratch, and she put a lot of value on food and the family and connectivity. And I think that that kind of passed down. I remember her baking bread in our kitchen and the whole house just smelling so good and cutting slices for us. You know, like that kind of thing was um, connected. And we lived in Israel in 1972, so I was seven. And uh, it was, among other things, an exploration of food and culture through the food for me. What do you remember from eating there? You know, I remember getting hot pita out of the ovens right off the street and stopping on our way into the old city to have hummus. I remember falafels, the falafel stands, like those kinds of things. And then the markets were entirely different for me. I didn't know, you know, what it was like to walk through those markets and the oranges and the fruit was amazing. And trying to figure out, you know, what you could have for dinner, what you could carry home. Like it was different, right? We didn't have a car and yeah, it was a, a, a great experience. Well, and the idea of getting things from markets was probably like that's, you're getting that in an early age then. Yes. Yeah, that exposure, it was invaluable in my education and kind of like opened me up to what the world is like outside of this country. So in your mom, I mean, you've served your mom's pies at this restaurant for years. So that's, you know, has this family. I mean, we'll get more into the family connections of this place too. Um, was she, was she mostly a baker or a cook or just kind of all of the above? She did pies. She never baked cakes. So if we wanted a dessert, it was going to be a pie. And, um, Pies are good. Yeah, she, they were good. She worked here for almost a year when we opened. She was already getting up in, in, in the years uh, when, when we opened Prairie Grass. But um, she, and it's her recipe, and she, we make them fresh all the time. And yeah, it's pies. But do you have, and, and does that just sort of give you a special sort of feeling about it because you just remember these from growing up? Because like taste and smell are like these very vivid, you know, things that get imprinted upon you. Yes, I think a lot of people do. It's a powerful part of the uh, component that people relate to it. Pies, definitely. Do you remember the first meal or dish that you 
prepared and served to like your family? I don't know about the first one, but um, when I was young, we had that, like it was like the New York Times cookbooks and they were big oversized cookbooks and they were all different cultures. And I remember saying, I wanna cook from this one. And then we would buy all the ingredients and make it. And we made like, you know, almond cookies and all, all kinds of things out of there. So it was fun. Do you remember anything you were particularly proud of? Like, wow, this tastes really good. Or wow, I just made this, I don't know, steak dinner for everyone or something like that. Like anything that was kind of elaborate and, you know, entree-like. You know, later on in my career, I remember the first time my mother had lobster that I had cooked. And like the the idea of, you know, being trained in the Ritz-Carlton kitchen with Fernand Gutierrez, and it was a French background, and to make that lobster bisque and it like blew her away it was like this this is it this is what i wanted so i yeah i have those memories and experiences the abundance setting is a project that you're doing now um basically helping women in the industry who are working mothers kind of achieve some balance am i describing that right yes yeah achieve their goals the the idea is that uh, the statistics are like six percent of the independent restaurants are owned by women. And that number has not really changed in years. It's not like getting better. So who's gonna deal with the issues? Who's going to address the problems? And then when there are women that are trying to come up through the ranks, they need help. And that help can come in terms of mentorship. We did a meal relief program from Abundant Setting. It had multiple layers to it and it continues to evolve. But I think what makes the abundant setting unique is that right now, um, during the pandemic, all of the things that we try to do to make life better kind of went on hold for all of us. And it was just like, keep the restaurant open. Do whatever you have to do, keep the restaurant open. Yeah, but this is also an opportunity for change and to focus on what it is that we can do to make the restaurant industry more livable, more fair, have more equity in it. Uh, things like maternity leave or a pumping room, all those kinds of things that might not be a big deal, but make a statement that we want women to be part of the experience and that they are welcome here. And I think that that, um, that voice out there that is national and is, uh, it's picking up and has resonance and people are listening. You would think by now that those percentages would have gone up just given the prominence of, you know, so many female chefs and just the progress we like to think that society's making. I mean, why hasn't it gone up? It's very difficult to have children and be in a, be in a restaurant. Like if you are the chef and you have the a way to, okay, my sous chef is going to cover for me and I'm going to step back. I own the place. I can make decisions about staffing. But if you're not in control, if you're coming up through the ranks and you, you're working six nights a week, okay, but who's going to put you know, the, the child to bed? Who's going to make sure they do their homework? And if there's somebody that can't cover for you, okay, I can't come to work today. I'm sorry. How, how does that work? How's it going to work in the restaurant industry? It's very difficult to overcome these kind of challenges. And there's not been much progress made on those issues over decades. I think in the restaurant business as a whole, there hasn't been a lot of progress. I think 
I think that there's accountability to chefs that they need to act and be responsible. And that is a huge step forward. And I like that. Um, but I think in terms of women joining the sous chefs and chefs, it still were very much minority. So when you were coming up as a chef and you decided, okay, this is what I want to do, how much uh, of a detriment was it to you being a woman and like sort of what sort of headwinds did you face? You know, I wasn't, like, I'd been raised to kind of say, if you want to be the president, you can be. You know, you can do whatever you want. And I believe that. So when I decided I wanted to be a chef, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Get out of my way, right? <laughs> kind of thing. And I, um, I was very lucky that Fernand Gutierrez just had that kind of philosophy. Whoever worked hard is and was creative and willing to work in his system, he wanted them there. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter what what sex or race or nationality you were. So this is at the Ritz-Carlton Chicago yeah. downtown, which at the time was one of the top dining establishments in the city. How did you, how did, what, what, what got you to that point that you could get hired by a place of that caliber? I worked at, um, well, I was in school at uh, Dumas Pair with Chef Wanstone, which was up here. It was in Glenview. And they had a internship with the Ritz-Carlton, and I didn't leave. I stayed there 21 years. 21 years, and they sent me to work in Paris and Lyon to train, and it was an amazing experience. But I basically just spent my entire beginnings of my career working at the, at the hotel. And you were and you were making high end fine dining. Did you when when you were sort of starting off? Was that your goal to do that sort of food? My goal was to learn as much as I could, and I was passionate and wanted to learn, and I just kept pushing. You know, I did not approach this industry from this is what I want and the. It was more like from the ground up. I started cleaning fish, and then you could see the quality, and you knew what you were, what you were doing. And I kind of felt um, that openness allowed me to stay there and really develop my skills and talents. So, how would you weigh like what's more important, ingredients or technique? It's both. It's both. But what defined me as a chef? Uh, coming up through the ranks was the fact that I supported local and I remember that I had a restaurant experience where I went out and I had a tomato salad and I was like this is the best tomato I ever ate where'd you get it and they were like well we got that from Kinnick Kinnick Farm and I'm like well how do I buy from them and then there was kind of silence because people weren't sharing that information right and I remember having the conversation with Abby Mendel who was a friend and um she was like, yeah, I mean, how do we get this? How do we make this happen? How do we make it accessible to everybody? And I did a, I did a class, a cooking class, and this was like one of those light bulb moments. It was a cooking class with Abby Mendel, and it was about these beautiful copper pots that, you know, she was, she was getting people to purchase. And I did the demo, and I made a spinach soup, and I used Snug Haven spinach. And in the late fall, the stems freeze and they become like candy. And this spinach soup will blow your mind. It's very simple. You just take a gorgeous stock, you take the spinach, saute it, you blend it, you add a little butter, 
and you look like a superstar. And I'm telling these people, I'm showing them how, and then I'm like, but you, but you can't make it because you can't get the spinach. Right. Right. So what good does it do you that, you know, so then it was like, okay, we have to do something about this. And we did, right. That's when we started Green City Market. And, you know, it was people like Rick Bayless and Michael Altenberg that came together and shared their sources. And I had, by that time, I had farm sources and um, really helped the local uh, agriculture connect with the public. Yeah, so Green City Market is this wonderful, large market, kind of by Lincoln Park Zoo. Yes. Um, and uh, and it just has fantastic stuff, all organic, right? It's all certified. It's all not certified. all organic. There's okay. all different kinds of certifications. And on our website, you can find all the different certifications. So, and you as a chef were one of the founders of it. Yes. So, so how did that happen and work? Well, that was the, the catalyst was the conversations. Right. And the networking. But we started uh, in a little alley in the city, and then we moved to Lincoln Park, and we've been there. It's This is the 23rd year that it's been open. Um, I went this morning. It's spectacular. Um, but when you say we did this, like you're a chef, like you're, you know, you're trying to get those beautiful spinaches and ramps or whatever else. But what are you doing to like actually have make this thing happen? Because that's not your background uh, in training in a culinary school. Isn't here's how to open a farmer's market. Right. You know, when you when you're a chef and you're training, coming up through the ranks, they're going to teach you everything about food and flavor profiles and controlling it. And your focus needs to be on what you do every night, oftentimes six nights a week. You're going to work a 12-hour day, sometimes longer. And all of a sudden, they say, okay, now you're the sous chef. Okay, now you're the chef. And you're supposed to understand business. You're supposed to understand marketing. You know, you're supposed to understand HR and how to bring a team behind you. And how do you do that, right? Well, when we started the market, you, we, we started a 501c3, and we brought in farmers, and we did a lot of networking to get those farmers there and to figure out what the problems were that were stopping them from being able to sell to the public. And, you know, most, most some of them were well-established, but we had people that were in their older years farming, and they just couldn't do both. It, it took time to find farmers that were able to actually make this work. And um, it's been an amazing journey. How many farmers markets were around at that time when you started that? You know, there were some. They were uh, city-run, and there still are farmers markets that are city-run. And over the years, Green City Market has had uh, employees that worked at both in order to construct and create the application process, which is really the touch point of control. Because it seems like now, I mean, you know, I'll go to the Evanston one. I used to go to Green City, Green City when I was in the city, but it's just part of some, you know, for like six months a year, it's part of your weekend is that you get up on Saturday and you go to the farmer's market. And I don't know how much in the culture that was back then. So it seems like it's a shift where people understand hey, I'm going to, you know, it's it's that time of year where I'm just going to go get this fresh stuff and I'm going to sign up for a CSA and do all this other thing. So maybe the home, you know, cooks have kind of come along and, you know, in part, it's sort of like 
chicken or egg a little bit, but you, you guys have made this available and then there's more people taking advantage of it, which makes it more viable for these farms to sell stuff at these places. Yes, that, that, that's the idea. It's protecting our land. It's protecting our food source. And, you know, our children need to know where their food comes from and planting with them in the spring can make a big difference. It's, it's that, it's, part of our culture. And for me, it's the motivation that drives my menu, that drives my creativity, that brings my restaurant and myself identity. And I, I feel like it's, it's not, it's not, we have not succeeded. We have not done enough. Like we are engaged in the culture, but we're also part of the food community. And there's a, there's a pretty there's a growing food community in Chicago, but that messaging has to be out there and relevant to people that in order to have this incredible tasting food and access, you need to put your vote, put your money towards those local farms. So you were at the Ritz-Carlton. Uh, George Bombaris was the executive chef. He was the executive chef. And and running that kitchen, it was really it was one of the best restaurants in the city. You know, it was the one that would get the four stars in Chicago Magazine and the Tribune and and all of that. And it was a very high end dining experience. Um, and I would imagine that felt pretty good being doing that. You were a young chef, and then. You guys left and opened Prairie Grass Cafe in Northbrook, where we're sitting right now, uh, which is a very accessible restaurant. What was your thinking and 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 thinking like I want to do more food for the masses instead of like this very acclaimed, you know, prestige-filled you know position that you had in the city? Yeah, I, I things like words like comfortable and approachable. Like they are the kind of foundations of what Prairie Grass had. And we also are a neighborhood, a neighborhood restaurant. And for me, that doesn't mean, you know, that we're serving things that like you'd find in a diner, but it means that this is the place where you can come night after night if you want to and uh, be part of this food community. And I, it, it has it has been very successful in that we have a huge group of loyal regulars that are here for good quality food and to be treated well with good service and a great wine list. I mean that it, that did work, and it's taken um, it, it. And I am here cooking. I am home. You know, I, and I feel like that's been. Um, kind of the foundation of the restaurant, that both George and I work here. My husband, Rohit Nambiar, works here, and uh, we're connected. You know, I think um, I'd, one thing that I really want to talk about is community. Like that, that word community, like the food community coming together, and it's, it's on multiple levels. It's like there's a community of women chefs, there's a community of farmers, there's a food community in Chicago, but that chef community in Chicago has done some amazing things and has really taken a stand on being supportive of each other. And I don't know that that is true across the nation. It may be, but um, I think Green City Market has been a part of that, that no matter what style of restaurant or background you have with food, good quality food is something that we all share. It's a human thing. And that 
kind of people rallied around that idea of coming together around good food. But then above and beyond that, the Chicago community has just done this big event uh, for Ukraine, the refugees of Ukraine. So we, we closed the restaurants for COVID two years ago, March 16th. And on that date, uh, two years, we did the event. So these restaurants that have been compromised and have gone through an incredible struggle rallied and came out. We had 72 of them, but so many other people from the Chicago community wanted to also participate, whether they couldn't because of financial reasons or they were traveling or it was because it went, it happened fast. We reacted fast and it came together. And it wasn't like and Tony Priolo and myself were the chefs that organized it. And then we had help from Darren Guest and Ida Davidman, who also were, you know, like point people and ha handled all the sponsorship and stuff like that. But um, the, the chef community rallied and the food community supported it. The, the donations were like 5,000 and 10,000. We had a few large ones from Ukra Ukrainian-based companies, but primarily it was just people giving money in Chicago. And it felt so good to acknowledge that all of us can come together and support what we need, what we feel passionate about. Do you feel in general like the Chicago chef's culinary community is more collaborative than competitive? Yes. And is Absolutely. that unusual for a city, or is that just the way things are? I don't know, but it's progressively gotten better in Chicago. And I think part of it is, like I said, stems from Green City Market taking a stand to pull people together. Um, but I also think that it's about, um, it's about supporting and connecting. And you see these things coming up, like Abundant Setting was well-received and a lot of chefs offered to help. And uh, Let's Talk is a women's uh, group that meets once a month and started during the pandemic. Rohini Day was one of the founders of it. And it's basically, what can we do to network and support each other? Women-owned businesses in the, in the food industry. And that idea is across the board. We have problems. Okay, we need to come together on a call and talk about solutions. So it's not just like, you know, this is so hard or what, it, it's like, okay, so what did you do that worked? Maybe I can do that. You know, and that idea to help each other stay open during the pandemic and to help each other share information, it, I think it did, a lot for the community to pull it together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've worked with a lot of chefs. I mean, you have a pretty good pedigree in a way. And I remember there was, I remember watching Top Chef years ago and they said, you know, in this, this episode they're bringing on their mentors and, and Beverly Kim of Parachute and Wherewithal, who's a wonderful chef and very, you know, much celebrated in this city, uh, brought on you. And I was like, wait, there's Sarah, there's my friend. Um, do you, have you, and I don't know what the, the question with that is more of an observation, but it seems like you've, you've sort of made a point of like helping a lot of people and that there's, you know, you know, you're, you're out here in Northbrook, which, you know, no offense to Northbrook, but it's not kind of the center of like the scene that's, you know, on the hot list in Chicago, but you also have all these chefs, you know, who have worked with you and learned a lot from you and look up to you and revere you. So, yeah, I mean, I I think as a chef, particularly at the Ritz-Carlton, coming up through the ranks, there's a lot of chefs that have worked for me at some point. And I th the conversation 
that I think is most beneficial. At some point, if somebody says to you, you know, you're ready, you're ready, whether you're in my kitchen or another kitchen, it's time that you go out there and do it on your own. You don't need to work for anybody else at this point. I'm never going to stop learning. I'm never going to stop moving forward. I'm never going to stop adapting and making my restaurant as good as it can be. So at some point when you want to open your own place, it doesn't mean it's you're ending your education. It's just a different phase of your education. And having those conversations with people, I had it with Bruce Sherman. I mean, he didn't work for me very long. He worked maybe a year at the Ritz-Carlton, and he was extremely talented. He came in with a massive amount of knowledge. But he needed somebody to look him in the eye and say, stop working for other people now. Go and do this. You are incredibly talented. You need to have your own place. And to hear that, whether it was pivotal for him or not, I don't know. But for me, this is part of being a chef that I'm always looking at the development of the people that work for me and to be able to say, it's time to, to launch. You don't hold people back, you push them forward. Yeah, so he, so he went on to North Pond and, and did, I guess you would call it farm to table, really elevated, wonderful cooking, one of the, you know, and he was there for years and, and yeah, he came out of your kitchen and that's, that's great. And it's, it's cool also because there are certain chefs, some of them prominent uh, over the years who've been known for sort of not, not wanting to like let the birdies fly out of the nest because they want to sort of hold on to them and then feel threatened once they're gone. And it seems like the happier, more successful chefs are the ones who can point and say, look, all these people who worked with me or, you know, or just all these people who I like are being successful and that's for the good of everyone. Yeah. I mean, it, it strengthens the community. And um, also that underlying message of when somebody comes to my kitchen, they're gonna understand the importance and my value of holding local and sustainable as something that's really important. And if they go on and be a chef, that's one more chef that we have that's also using their buying power to support local and sustainable foods. So, you, so you're in the north suburbs of Chicago, and and it's an interesting position because I know you and I know chefs who, you know, one in particular who had opened a really great restaurant in Evanston, and was sort of constantly had that tug of how how sort of how much can I push the boundaries of what I'm doing? How much can I sort of push the you know guests to experience new things versus putting things on the menu that you know that are going to be kind of tried and true for a more conservative small C you know diners? It seems like you've struck a really nice balance here where you're you're in the suburbs, but you're also still doing your cooking. Is that is there sort of that tension there where it's like, how far can I push things? Or are you sort of, you've been doing this for a while. Are you just like at this comfort spot and you're like, okay, people trust me. I could do what I want. You know, it's a mix. I, I always want to be creative and learn new things and keep progressing. So yeah, there, there's an element that my, there's, there's something called taste recognition. Like when you come to a restaurant, it has an identity of flavors that you expect to have happen, and prairie grass is very much like that. You know, people come for the chicken cutlets, they like the white fish, yes. But I also want to do things that are um, really celebratory of the season and new and different, and uh, I, I want 
myself to continue to learn. So, I, you know, you never stop. You keep moving forward. And I think as long as you have that mentality, it reflects in the restaurant that it's fresh and new and, you know, uh, part of what's going on in the community. Yeah, I mean, you'll get excited about what you got at the market that morning or that weekend, and you'll be like, oh, you have to try this salad because it's got all this great stuff in it. And then and then we'll be like, mm-hmm, you're right. <laughs> Yes, I get it. I get excited about the food. I'm passionate about it, and it really is my inspiration. It keeps me going. You know, um, there's a like along the way because I've gotten older. I need to always watch my health, and I want to have as much energy as possible. And one of the things that I've learned is people that meditate, which I do, but people that meditate, it's the same brain activity as when you are focused and creative and doing like an art project. So I feel like I get energy, I get renewal when I am in the zone of cooking and it's coming together and ideas and writing down menus and like those creative moments, they renew, they renew us, they give us energy. By the way, did you ever get tempted or asked to do any sort of cooking competition show? I've been asked frequently. I do, I do not do it for a couple of reasons. You know, um, it's really not my thing to think about how fast I can do something. And I don't really like being competitive. It makes me uncomfortable in a negative kind of way. Cause I'm, I'm all about being in an uncomfortable zone, trying to change the world and make it better. But, um, I like there's that, that side I didn't love. And I also am about the message of the, you know, using local product and sometimes that's get lost in, in some of those things. So, so speaking of the local product, so we're for two years plus into this pandemic, you know, hopefully coming out on the other end. Um, there's all sorts of supply chain issues. There's all sorts of personnel issues and staffing issues at farms as well as at restaurants. Like sort of where do things stand now in your ability to get what you want to serve at the restaurant? You know, I think you see it in the supply chain and you see it in escalating prices. I mean, there's no question about it. I've, ne I've never in my adult life seen prices like this for food. It's just difficult and labor costs are up. And people don't really want to talk about it either. They just want to get back to the way life is. And it's challenging. Yeah, it's challenging. And things have not returned to normal in the restaurant industry. I would say that there are isolated examples of, you know, really hot restaurants that people are drawn to that maybe are experiencing huge volume and stuff. But for me, it's like we are, we have about half the staff we did pre-pandemic and we're doing half the staff, half the staff. And then we're do it. We do what we can. We do what we can with, with numbers. And, uh, I, I feel pretty good about it. I feel like we've hit a groove that's working for us. And I'm proud of how we got through the pandemic. We were resourceful we stayed true to our values. We took care of people. We kept our community intact. I feel good about that. And we, you know, put in the air filtration system, which for the most part has kept us pretty safe. What are the innovations that you were forced to come up with, you know, during the pandemic that will carry on and make you guys better in the future? One of the things I've done is weekly emails that uh, give you all the specials. And I'd say 40% we sell specials per day. It's about 40% of our business, which is a huge number. And that, it kind of drives it. And a lot of that is still to go. 
you, you seem to me ahead of the curve in terms of doing these carry out meals in part because they were very generous and delicious and you know I sent numerous people up here because it just was a lot of really great food um, and so when I get those emails now I'm always looking to see what they are and then you know it's like oh we could eat there that night or you could pick up something like that yeah I, I like I I think people are still ordering to go not because they're afraid to come in but because it's become part of our culture to have that experience at home. So you have half the staff that you did and now you're making to-go meals and serving in house. Like, how does that work? It's really interesting. Like at four o'clock we open up and we get hit with the to-go's for about an hour, hour and a half. And then the restaurant opens up at five. And I didn't do it intentionally, just kind of the way it worked. So as long as I don't get hit by both at the same time, I'm usually okay. And are there foods that you're making now that that you, you weren't making earlier or other things that you want to make that it's like because of inflation or supply stuff, you're like, I just can't make that right now. You know, it, yes, there are things I'm doing now that I didn't do before. Like I have a lamb stew on. I might not have done that. I might have done like lamb chops and been more thought of presentation. And I, it's just kind of opened my world of you can do whatever you want. And people are going to, as long as it, as long as it tastes delicious, they're going to love it. So it's has given me freedom. And you had a vegan sort of, was that sort of a subscription? Yeah. Tell me how that went and worked. Yeah, so I do have a pretty strong following of vegans that eat um, eat here, but they eat in a, in a unique way. They're watching the menus. And when I run a vegan item, I have a, I have a list of, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 people that I text. I personally text them what the item is, and then I generally sell out of that vegan special, and a lot of it is to go. And so we've done that, and we also did subscriptions where you pay for the month, and like every Thursday you pick up a vegan entree and a side, and that worked. I had quite a following, and in the summertime with the salads it was up to like 50, 60 people, which was almost like more than I wanted. You know, it's a lot of work to do all that chopping. Are you still doing that? I'm going to this coming summer. Yeah, I did. I did the month of, I think, month of February. I did vegan subscription. Yeah. Are there ways that you think people in general should be eating that would be healthier? And do you try to kind of cater your menu to that? Like to maybe be like, yeah, it shouldn't all be about these huge beef portions. You need to eat more plants and that sort of thing. Well, I think it's in my nature that I like to cook with vegetables. That. Uh, I'm not making any judgments what people should or shouldn't eat. I'm just offering what I think is delicious. And I do think that if you are health conscious and you have your idea of what that means, because everybody knows what that means, right? You can't tell them. They know what that means. They can come and make choices and feel good about it. Well, I remember coming here with the girls. Uh, I have daughters. And when they were much younger, um, you know, later they very much enjoyed ordering off the, the regular grown-up menu. But when they were little, you'd get stuff off the kids' menu. And you, unlike almost every other restaurant, did not have, like, chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. Uh, or if you did have mac and cheese, it was an elevated mac and cheese. But you you, you came up with a – you had, like, sort of a pasta with a – it was just totally different kid stuff because you were just like, well, why should kids eat that, right? Right. I feel like I feel like restaurants, when they offer a kid's menu, it should be reflective of how that restaurant feeds people. It should not be, 
you're gonna have a burger or pizza whatever it should be whatever i am cooking for everybody else it's a smaller portion maybe it's simpler but it should basically be reflecting my cooking style and that's what i put on the menu and um i feel you should always have like with kids you should always offer them the option of something healthy and you know people say well my my child won't eat vegetables okay how many times did you offer it before you stopped and did you put it out when they were hungry or did you put bread down on the table first and you know like all those tricks that i actually have done classes and stuff to help people with just basic ways to get kids engaged in eating good food. And as you mentioned earlier, you work with your husband, Rohit. Yes. He's, he's at the front of the house. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, is his title the general manager or, I mean, he's, he's the guy who you kind walk wears in. wears a lot of different hats. Yeah. He's in charge of the wine program and, you know, he'll greet you when you walk in. So, and you have a daughter, uh, same age as one of my daughters. How do you make that work? Like where you're actually working with the person all day who you're also going home with and then you're also trying to juggle childcare. Yeah, it's difficult. There's no, yeah, there's no easy answer to it. Uh, I think the thing is, as an example for, to my daughter, that I have what I consider to be a good life, a happy, successful, you know, it's not maybe... Um, your definition of success, but for me, I feel like I'm doing what I feel passionate about, and for me, that that makes me feel successful. And I think as long as you feel good about your life and what you're doing, you are an example to your kids. And that's the most important thing. So I try to communicate to her about what I do and why I feel good about it. And every night we talk about something in the restaurant it's it's my life right so i share that with her and with my husband rohead he he's passionate about his wine club he's got over 50 people in his wine club and you know they pick up wine every month and they also eat here a lot and a lot and sit at the bar and talk to him a lot and he loves that you know it's community yeah it is it's a community and he um, is always finding new people to bring into the fold and share information with. But those kinds of things define us and give us pleasure in life. And if we share that with our families, it's a good thing. If you focus on the negative, that's, you know, if you come home and bitch and moan about what's going on, no. And everybody has that. It's just not, it just doesn't have a place in the relationship when you sit at the table with your family and talk. Now, does your daughter cook? Not much. But she definitely knows what she likes, and we go to restaurants and we talk about them. We talk about what worked, we talk about what they do that we don't do, and should we incorporate that. We talk about levels of service and attentiveness. We talk about how they design their mocktail list, and we talk about where they source from. We talk about what that chef's specialty is and where he where he or she came from to do that. We talk about the diversity within the restaurant. I mean, we have conversations that are, like when you go to a restaurant, it isn't just about, okay, what am I eating? It's about the whole thing. So she's very, very perceptive and keyed in to the industry. Has she kind of grown up here? Like, is she here a lot of the time? She's here, not a lot, but she is here. She comes up and she eats with friends here. And... Uh, yeah, she's around. 
She knows the kitchen. She speaks Spanish to them reluctantly, but she does it. What, what do you think are the biggest sort of challenges and I guess also opportunities kind of moving forward as we get out of hopefully, you know, the whole COVID thing? I think rethinking the way the industry is. Um, restaurants need to be more profitable. They need to be less about crazy numbers of people. This is, this is what I think. It should be about a, a chef's passion and creativity, and it should be about celebrating the season. And I don't care what style of restaurant it is, that it, it should always be about the quality and content of the food, because that is what we work with. That is our art form. And why wouldn't you use the best if you had that opportunity to make your, your art the best? Um, it's about community. And I think that with those overriding values, there's so many conversations happening about how to make the industry better, how to make it more livable, you know, how to, like, what have I given up over the years that maybe I didn't have to? And we have this concept, like, you kind of wear this badge of honor, like, I'm tough. I can get through this. Like, I fell in the kitchen. Right? I fell yesterday. And I'm going to show you this, right? Oh, she's got a big bruise under her uh, arm. Yeah. And so the first thing I did is show, I showed the cooks when I walked in. I fell the other day. Right? This is wrong. This idea that we have to have this kind of toughness about us in order to do this industry, that's messed up and it needs to go away. So you felt like you had the impulse to show them and then you're like, why did I do that? Yeah, I'm like, you know... It was bad that I fell and I'm, I'm embarrassed and... How did you fall? You know, I went someplace before work and I wanted to look nice. And so I had on my nice shoes. Ah, the and shoes. I didn't bring this, the, I wear Vans with skids on them, you know, the tre treads on the bottom. And I didn't change. And I thought, oh, I'll just be careful. Well, I wasn't careful enough. It was my fault, right? But like the, the industry is it can be dangerous. You know, we don't talk about that. It's behind the line. It's fire. It's the grease. You know, I was watching this thing on Instagram the other day where somebody stuck their hand in the, the oil to pull the donuts out. Ah! Now, why would you put that on Instagram ah! for people to look at that? That's ridiculous. Why would you do that too? Why would you do that too? <laughs> ah. You know, it, it's like we have to have an understanding. And if it's so crazy during service, that's only about what's gonna hit the plate, that it's cooked right, this. Okay, but wait a minute, you're a person back there and it's hot and you need to be careful. And it isn't just that. It's you need to breathe and do this right with integrity. And slowing down just a little bit and elevating the expectations of livability within the kitchen and showing respect for your staff and building that culture and that as a sense of community, I, I just feel like there needs to be a shift. And as part of the old guard, because I am, you know, I am, like I've been in the industry a long time, sometimes I have to check myself and say, hey, you know, that's bad that I have a bruise. I'm not proud of the fact that I did that, you know? And it isn't just something that happens in the kitchen. You just have to deal with it and get up and keep working. I got up and kept working and I thought, you know what, this is stupid, I'm going home. And I said, George, can you please take the pass? I need to go. And I went home. You took care of yourself. I took care of myself. And I think that that, being a woman, the instinct is, I'm tough. Right. I'm not going to show that I'm hurt. 
that was my gut instinct. I'm just going to get up and keep working. And then I thought, wait a minute, this is not okay. I need to breathe and let this pass and not absorb the trauma like that. Now, I'm guessing you're not a yeller in the kitchen. Not, no. I mean, I, I, I find that that is, the, the idea is behind the yelling, right, was to motivate people, right? You want it to come out faster. You want it to be better. You want somebody to listen to you. And there are so many better ways to get people engaged. There's so many better ways. And everybody isn't the same. So some people you need to be really firm with, but you don't need to yell. You know, and some people, some people need, you need to talk to them or maybe you need to say, hey, wait a minute, what is going on with you? Why are you upset? And, and give them that opportunity to tell you and maybe they need extra days off. But treating people in a respectful way makes for a better kitchen. Did you work with yellers in your career at all? Yeah, there were times that I was... I was in those situations, absolutely. And you're just like, note to self, no. Not how I'm going to operate. No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Many people shut down when you yell at them. And that's not something you, you want to see. And, I, and, and sometimes I say, you know, in, in your adult, adult life, Mark, how many people yell at you? Including children? <laughs> how many people yell at you? Like I, I know you, it's not nice. It's it's true. Not that often. And I could remember like the times when I was at the Tribune where I got yelled at, and I was just like, "Come on," you know. And and I remember it too. So yeah. So it's like maybe you have an argument with your spouse, or maybe you and your kid are going to go at it. But very rarely is there another adult that would have the audacity to yell at me, right? But it happens in kitchens. And that's not okay. Pressurized situations is when, you know, they, whatever yelling I remember would be, you know, like where, you know, the Oscars have ended and, you know, the deadline was the minute the show ended and you're trying to like put in the surprise best picture winner. Like, we need that now. And I'm like, well, it's, you know, words. Anyway. And, but you remember that. And, 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 and this wasn't even like, you know, you're an idiot. It was like, just, just that sort of like raised voice. And I remember it cause you just remember those things. So. I don't know. Yeah. But it seems like the industry, uh, you know, whether it's in restaurants or other food service, like bakeries, for instance, there's this kind of soul searching going on in like, well, how, how should the workers expect to be treated and how do you balance the profitability of the, you know, business in a very difficult, challenging time with the needs and wants of the people who are working there. So that if you're like in the working at the counter of a bakery and you see lines out the door and you say, oh, I should be making more than I am. Like, I don't know. It's like, like there was a story about that this week in the, the Tribune about a certain bakery in Chicago. And, and it, it was one of those where I was sort of reading that and I'm like, I kind of see both sides of this one because you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to make everything work right now. Hard to make everything work. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it is a lot of balance. And the thing is, um, the restaurant industry is a pressure cooker. It's, it's people that are come in, they're hungry. They don't expect to wait. They expect to be treated with kindness and respect. And, um, you know, you have, a back of the house. I like I like open kitchens because 
then you see what's going on. You know what's going on. I, I don't have one, but I, I do have a lot of respect for people that work in open kitchens. And I, it, it's like, how do you balance this? And how do you balance all the different cultures and things that are going on? And and then escalating food costs and escalating labor costs. And is it going to shut me down? Am, am I going to make it? Like those kinds of questions are, you know, yes, I would like to be able to offer you know, six months maternity leave for and paternity leave. I would like to do those things, but restaurants are not going to be able to do that unless they're financially successful. So that's when you said to me, how do I want to see the restaurant? It's, it needs to be more profitable. We need to figure out how to do this so that we are not struggling with money. And if, if restaurants are struggling with money, then it's very difficult to pay fair wages. It's difficult to understand how you give benefits in community. And some of it may need to be policy to changes. You know, I'm not really, I don't consider myself an advocate or a spokesperson for this kind of thing. But I think in this industry, we need, we need some policy to come through from that you have to pay maternity leave. You have to offer some kind of flex schedule. I think that you need to, to say those things because this is, the, the nature of the industry is pressure. And how do you make those choices? Well, and I mean, the restaurant industry notoriously has tight margins. You're now dealing with inflation, you're dealing with a labor shortage, and you're dealing with supply, ch supply chain issues. So what's the way you create this more profitable restaurant industry that can pay, you know, all this leave and benefits that you want to be able to do? Well, I, you know, I don't have all the answers, but for me, the ha having the revenue stream of to-goes as well as in the restaurants, right. I also sell to Fresh Midwest, who I have product there that you can buy um, and they deliver. So that's another form of revenue. And anything that... Uh, People need to be paid for their work, like the volunteer stuff. There, I want to volunteer. I want to do those things about things I'm passionate with. But when I do a cooking demo, I need to get paid for it. Sure. You know, when I do a speaking engagement, I need to get paid for it. Like those kinds of things. I think those forms of revenue, when chefs are open to that, can help a business. I was looking at the uh, the Prairie Grass website and your bio. Looks like it was written before you opened, and it says, uh, "It's time to have fun." My only hope is that I continue to produce something that I am proud of," she says, with characteristic modesty. Uh, her excited grin and that gleam in her eye tell us that Prairie Grass Cafe is going to be her personal pride and joy for a long time to come. So, did it did it come true? Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like this this. I wouldn't do it any other way. I'm happy with with my life and what I have here. And there is a lot of tension within the industry, but there's also a lot of rewards. And there's a lot of support from the Chicago community of chefs. The Illinois Restaurant Association has been amazing. There's just been some really good things that have happened along the way and continue to happen. And there are resources out there to help chefs and to help figure this out. And people are willing to talk. So yeah. And you're doing what you love to do. You're I'm cooking doing what I love you're to do. cooking the food you want to cook. Yes. And making people happy. Yes. Well, congratulations. And some of the time it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for, for being on Caropop and talking with me on microphone. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I'll obviously see you here again soon. Thank you. That's all for episode 32 of Caropop. Thanks so much to Chef Sarah Stegner for putting so much heart and brain power into what she says and what she serves. You can enjoy her food at Prairie Grass Cafe in Northbrook, Illinois, dine-in or carry-out. Go to prairiegrasscafe.com or call 847-205-4433. Also, look up and support The Abundance Setting, which supports the advancement of working mothers in the culinary and hospitality industries to have a sustainable career while maintaining a quality life at home. Thanks to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who also recorded this episode on location and makes everything taste better. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Caropop website, caropop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Caropop podcast. Thanks.